As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Nietzsche's maxim, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, isn't just a sound philosophical principle. It's also a certifiable physiological phenomenon. Toxins and stressors that could be deadly in large doses actually improve health and resilience in smaller, intermittent ones. The ironic thing my guest points out is that it's the fact that we're not getting enough of this sublethal stress these days that's really doing us in. Paul Taylor is a former British Royal Navy aircrew officer, an exercise physiologist, nutritionist, and neuroscientist, and the author of Death by Comfort, How Modern Life is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Today on the show, Paul discusses the science of hormesis, how small doses of intermittent stress can make us more resistant to chronic stress, and why you need to embrace what Paul calls discomfort harvesting. We talk about some now familiar topics like fasting and cold and heat exposure with fresh inspiration as to how important they are to practice and how to do them effectively. We discuss how hot a sauna needs to be to get the benefits of heat exposure, Paul's suggestion for how to make an ice bath on the cheap, what may be the single best type of food to eat to improve your gut's microbiome, a form of fasting that's got anti-cancer benefits but is so accessible it won't even feel like fasting, what supplement to take to mitigate the effects of a bad night's sleep, and much more. We end our conversation with how to use what Paul calls a ritual board to stick with your healthy habits and resist the soft underbelly of modern life. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash stronger. All right, Paul Taylor, welcome to the show. Uh, Brett, thank you for having me. I'm a longtime listener, so it's great to be on. Well, thanks for listening. So you got a new book out called Death by Comfort, How Modern Life is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. You have an interesting career because you are a neuroscientist who's also an exercise physiologist and a nutritionist. So how did you end up combining these three areas in your career? Well, it all started, I went to university and did a master's degree in exercise science. And then I joined the British military, I joined the Navy, and I I flew helicopters for a number of years. I also went through combat survival and resistance to interrogation training, which started my interest in this area. And then I ended up doing helicopter search and rescue, and I did another master's in nutrition because I didn't want to sort of hang around doing nothing on when we were waiting for, for the call. And I always had the intention of leaving and starting as a physiologist and nutritionist. So I did that. I moved to Australia, met my wife in Ecuador, actually, she's an Aussie, dragged me kicking and screaming to Australia, and I set up as a physiologist and nutritionist, working one-on-one initially. And, and then I realized that it wasn't so much about the science, it was about behavior change. And uh, so that's why I went on and did another, I went back to university and studied neuroscience. I'm now on kind of topping it off 
with a PhD in psychology. So I'm kind of what I call, um, I call myself an integrationist and a pracademic. So I like to take all the geeky academic research and turn it into practical tools and solutions that people can use. And, and, and now I do a lot of corporate speaking and translate that science um, for everyday people. All right, so let's talk about your book, Death by Comfort. You argue that the comfort revolution that we've experienced for the past 100 years is killing us. How has increased conveniences, uh, increased comfort made us sicker? So, so we need to start with a fundamental principle here. Um, Professor Frank Boost, legendary exercise physiologist, said that the, the human genome has not changed for over 45,000 years and that the current human genome requires and expects us to be highly physically active for normal functioning. And it's not just that. So, so if, we if we take the movement piece, we don't hunt or gather anymore. And we know that the Hadza, a hunter-gatherer tribe in Tanzania in, in East Africa, Hadza women and girls take double the steps of women and girls in modern societies. Hadza men and boys, three to four times the steps. But when it comes to intensity of movement, they do seven to 10 times the amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And what we now understand is that exercise is a very powerful driver of your gene expression. So when we're not exercising, we lose all those positive changes in gene expression that actually help us to be healthier. And then we have the convenience of food. You know, now with the rise of ultra processed foods, particularly in the last 30 or so years, and, and I know, Brett, in your country, 60% of all calories consumed are ultra processed foods. It's Australia's not far behind. And teenagers, American teenagers, 66%. And these things have lots of additives in them that disrupt our gut microbiome, that make us eat more. And it's these convenient foods that are actually destroying us. And then the other thing is that we live in thermoneutral environments now where we've got heating and cooling and we're no longer cold or hot. And that actually robs us of these ancient biologically conserved mechanisms that protect us and, and make us healthier when we're exposed to intermittent stressors of movement and some nutritional stress, but also the thermal stresses as well. So we're, we're missing these things that are fundamental to our biology. Right, so we've reduced stress, but in the process, it's counterintuitively increased chronic stress in a lot of parts of our lives. That's correct. And there's a whole heap of research that shows that people who exercise and who are fitter deal with psychological stress better. And we also know that exposing yourself to, to heat and cold just helps with what I call stress fitness. And that's my PhD is now focusing on stress fitness. But I like to use the analogy of physical fitness. So all of your listeners will understand that there's a continuum of physical fitness. You can be low fit, moderate, high fit, or very fit. Um, but you've got to do the work. You know, people who are up high on, on that continuum, they do the work. And, and you know as well as anybody, Brett, that if you stop training for a couple of weeks, you slip down that continuum. And this is what's happening with modern life. We're not getting those inputs that actually build our stress fitness. And then we see we have all sorts of teenagers, young people, and older people who are just not prepared for the inevitable stress that is thrown at them in terms of life. And so this all goes down to this idea in science, it's hormesis. Mm. Can you walk us through the science of hormesis? What is that? 
This is my favorite branch of science, um, kind of summed up by uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. That which does not kill us makes us stronger. So hormesis is defined as sublethal exposure to stressors or toxins, which at high levels can kill you, but at low to moderate levels induce stress resistance. And there are over 600 known hormetic stressors. And so exercise is one, cold exposure, heat exposure, but also the sun, UV radiation. You get too much of that, you get skin cancer, you don't get enough, you get low vitamin D. We know even small doses of nuclear radiation, which we used to think is damaging, now we actually see can enhance longevity in people. So there are a number of stressors, nutritional stressors as well, polyphenols, these little things that compounds that you get in certain foods, mostly fruits and vegetables, that are small doses of toxin, but actually upregulate our protective genes. So we get a net benefit when we expose ourselves to small doses of intermittent stress because it upregulates our protective genes. So cellularly, we become more resilient or increase our stress fitness because of exposure to that small dose of stress. Gotcha. And uh, this hormesis, it's uh, the stress, it goes on a U-shaped curve, right? So That's right. There's this, you reach a point where you're going up in the stress and it hits a sweet spot. And then if you keep increasing the stress, you start having diminishing returns. It starts going down and becomes detrimental. That's right. And then it becomes detrimental. And we see that from everything. You know, you see that in exercise. Now that's starting to come out that the people who are doing the most, and we're talking here, marathon runners, people who do lots of triathlon, these guys, sometimes they actually don't live longer than people who do no exercise. Now, it's not all of them. So there's some individual stuff that we don't understand. But basically, all of these hormetic stressors follow that same curve that, that you just described. And it's a little bit like Goldilocks in the three bars. It can't be too little. It can't be too much. It's got to be just right. And a lot of our upbringing, it's too little exposure. All right, so let's walk through some ways we can start adding some more good stress in our life, reducing the comfort in our lives a little bit so we don't have death by comfort. We've been talking about exercise. Let's talk about what goes on in our bodies when we expose ourselves to the stress of exercise. Because it is a stressor. Like You feel good after a good workout, but when you're doing the workout, it's actually a stressor. So what's going on in our bodies when we exercise? Yeah, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head here, Brett. And, 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 you know, I spoke to thousands of people over the years about exercise. Some people go, yes, I'm into it. Others go, I don't like it because it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I say to them, it's supposed to be bloody uncomfortable. That is why exercise is good for you because it's a stressor that activates these stress response genes um, that actually protect us. And then, then there's another wave of gene expression called metabolic priority genes. These are hundreds of genes that are upregulated whenever you expose yourself to the stress of exercise. And then we have other genes that improve our mitochondrial function. So it is by exposing ourselves to moderate intermittent amounts of stress in the body, we're upregulating gene expression. And, and what we now know is that exercise releases a whole host of, of things called myokines. Some people call them exerkines. These are molecules that are released from your contracting muscle that we now know get into your bloodstream. They not only affect the muscle, but they get into your bloodstream and affect pretty much every single organ and every organ system in the body in a positive manner. 
And recent research shows that these myokines or exokines are carried around the body by these things called exosomes. Um, and so it gets pretty technical, but I just want people to understand there are massive changes in gene expression and release of, of these myokines that then tell the organs and the organ systems in your body to improve how they're actually operating. Yeah, one myokine that people might have heard of is BDNF. Mm. Uh, what is BDNF? So BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And neurotropic means nerve growth, right? So it helps you to create new brain cells in areas of the brain, such as the hippocampus and maybe some other areas, but it also protects the brain cells that you have against damage. And, and we know there's a couple of ways that BDNF is released. So, so there are two myokines that cross the blood-brain barrier. One of them is called ericin, and that crosses either from cold exposure or exercise that crosses the blood-brain barrier and triggers the release of BDNF. And then lactate, you know, people know about lactic acid. We used to think that was a waste product. We actually now know that, that it is fuel for some different cells, including our brain cells. And lactate actually crosses the blood-brain barrier and triggers the release of BDNF. And, and some, some of your older listeners, Brett, will remember miracle Grow in the United States. You know, this stuff that you sprinkle over um, plants and they would grow like crazy. BDNF is miracle Grow for the brain. Oh, uh, yeah. Some other myokines you mentioned in the book. There's myokines that drive metabolic adaptions, such as muscle and bone, growth and repair, improved immune function, healthier gut, healthier liver, healthier pancreas. And there's one myokine IL-6, uh, has anti-inflammatory effect on the body. So again, the stress of exercise can help reduce inflammation in the long run. Yeah, and, and, and this is the thing. So when you exercise, there's a transient increase in inflammation followed by a drop-off in inflammation. And often that's the sort of thing that we, we see. So you have to look at the long-term benefits of all of these molecules. And there's the body is just so sophisticated and we're still trying to work out exactly what goes on when we expose ourselves to things like the stress of exercise or other different stressors. So one thing you do when it comes to physical activity and physical movement, you encourage people to think of their daily activity consisting of three parts movement at the workplace, incidental movement, and dedicated. So walk us through these three areas and how can we increase our movement in these three areas? Yeah, so, so the workplace, you know, I always say to people, that if you have a job that involves lots of physical movement, that has got to be worth thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars a year because of the net effect on your health. But lots of us um, these days have, have got jobs that involve chronic sitting, and we know that chronic sitting is really, really bad for your health. And so I always encourage people, we know that if you're sitting for, for 20 to 30 minutes plus, there are significant negative changes in your gene expression. So it's just getting off your bum at least every 30 minutes, I encourage people, and just do some movement. Ideally, you know, the best case scenario, I've got kettlebells and club bells sitting right beside my desk. And every 30 minutes, I get up and swing some kettlebells and club bells around. But if you're in the workplace, you can just quickly walk them down a couple of flights of stairs. What that does is it's going to create positive gene expression, offset the sitting, but it's also going to burn up any stress hormones if you're having a stressful day. Then the other thing I talk to people about the workplace is it's just look for opportunities to move. And I've, I've got a rule that when I'm on the phone, I stand up. Or you can go walking whenever you're on the phone. And then trying to do things like walking meetings and stuff like that. Just any way that you can add these in. 
Then when it comes to our incidental stuff, um, it is about these little movement snacks and doing, I call them these little movement snacks, just one to two minute bursts throughout the day. And I have exercise equipment strategically placed all around my house that acts as a bit of a trigger. And actually one guy, uh, when I did a corporate workshop, it was the second time he'd see me and he actually said to me, we have changed our family that when we go into the village for a walk, we actually take the long cut rather than the shortcut. And I thought, you know what? That is just brilliant. You know, how many times have we driven past 30 perfectly serviceable car parks just so we can get as close as possible to our destination? And we're losing that opportunity to move. And and then with exercise, look, I think everybody's convinced of the benefits of doing more. But for me, one of the most important things is to do exercise that you enjoy. Like that is just really clear from the research that when you find something that you enjoy, you're much more likely to do it. But also really remember about the benefit of these movement snacks. And researchers call them VILPA, Vigorous Intensity Lifestyle Physical Activity. So these are just little one to two minute bursts of physical activity that we do throughout the day that we're starting to see are really, really beneficial. So it's not just going to the gym or going for a run. It's those little movement snacks that are important as well. Yeah, you could do movement snacks while you're watching TV. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Every time the adverts come on, there's an opportunity to do movement snacks or just do them while you're watching stuff. You know, Get an exercise bike and watch your favorite podcast or watch TV while you're doing some stuff. That's ideal. Yeah, I love the, the kettlebell. I actually busted out my kettlebell after I read your book and put it someplace in my house that I walk by. I sit down a lot for my job. So I've been doing movement stacks with the kettlebell because it, it's so it's so easy. It takes up little space and you can do all sorts of things with it. Yeah, they're, ju- they're, they're just brilliant. I'm a massive fan of kettlebells and club bells. Okay, so move more at work, do more incidental. And the movement at work and the incidental movement, you talk about how a fitness tracker can help with that, right? Counting your steps, seeing your movement. You don't want to get obsessive about this stuff, but I, I like the Apple Watch because I can look at it and be like, oh, you know, I haven't really done much today. I'll get up and take a 20-minute walk. Brett, I'm exactly the same. I have an Apple Watch and and I have my active energy set for 750 calories every single day. And it just, it's that trigger. And it's just making sure that you're doing it. And oftentimes, you know, if I'm sitting a lot as well, I'll look at it and I'll go, oh my God, I just haven't done stuff. And it just, it gives you that little prompt to actually go and do stuff. So, you know, us neuroscientists will tell you what gets measured gets managed. And I'm a big fan of knowing how much you're actually moving. That's really, really key. Okay, and with dedicated exercise, pick something you like. Just get sweating out of breath frequently throughout the week. That's it, exactly. Okay, let's talk about this idea of, uh, you call it discomfort harvesting. I mean, we can do that by uh, exposing ourselves to heat and cold. So how can cold showers allow you to do discomfort harvesting? Yeah, so firstly, let me define discomfort harvesting. So in psychology, a psychologist will talk a lot about discomfort tolerance, you know, the ability to tolerate discomfort. But I prefer the term harvesting because tolerance kind of has the implication that this isn't that good for me and I just need to kind of tolerate it. Whereas harvesting, you're actually reaping the benefits. So we know there was a a landmark study done in Holland about seven or eight years ago where they took a bunch of, of workers and randomly assigned them into two groups. And one, they got to have a cold shower at the end of their normal shower for 30, 60, or 90 seconds. 
And the other group, the control group, just did their normal shower. And they measured their health, their sickness, and their absenteeism. And they found at the end of the year that the cold shower group had a 29% reduction in sickness and absenteeism, which is just massive. Now, since that study, there's been lots of other studies that have shown that there are really huge benefits from exposing yourself to cold water. And, and it activates something called the cold shock response. So this is an ancient mechanism that as soon as cold water touches your skin, we have neurons just under our skin that send a very quick signal to the brain. Um, and the brain activates this full body response, body and brain response um, to the cold. And it upregulates protective genes. It increases noradrenaline. I think you Americans call it norepinephrine and dopamine in the brain, which are, are really useful chemicals for motivation and for mood. And we get all of these physiological upregulations in protective gene expression just from that cold water response. And we know there's a, a recent study that showed that if you get into an ice bath at about four degrees, just for 20 seconds, you get a whopping three to 500% increase in dopamine and noradrenaline or nor norepinephrine, which is just huge. And it persists for hours. So it has positive lasting effects on your mood. And we're now actually seeing people with treatment-resistant depression being successfully treated with cold water therapy. No, we had, we had a, a guest on the podcast last year, Dr. Mark Harper, who wrote a book called Chill, The Cold Water Swim Cure. He's an anesthesiologist, but he swims out in the ocean when it's freezing. And that led him, he started researching how to prevent hypothermia during surgery. Mm. And that led him to research the benefits of cold water exposure in managing the body's overall stress response. I guess when anesthesiologists put people under, they have to keep the person cold. Uh, That's right. Has all his protective benefits. And he started doing research and like the people who do the cold water swimming, they get some of the similar benefits. So yeah, like you said, people who have been able to manage the depression with cold water exposure, decrease inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and things like that, all because of cold water exposure. Yeah. And the reductions in inflammatory markers, um, you know, we cannot underestimate those benefits because if you look at the vast majority of chronic diseases, inflammation, chronic inflammation is a key driver of that. So that seems to be one of the many benefits of this cold water exposure. And we know that you get activation of heat shock proteins and cold shock proteins and changes in gene expression when you regularly expose yourself to the cold. So it's about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's what I mean by discomfort harvesting. Uh, how cold does the cold water need to be to get the benefit? Do we know that? So yeah, it, it's, I had a, on my podcast, I interviewed Professor Mike Tipton, who is from the UK, would certainly know the guest that you talked about. Uh, he's the world leader in cold exposure. And, and he reckons that 15 degree water, that's now that's centigrade. I'm not sure how that translates to Fahrenheit, but um, 15 degrees centigrade um, seems to be the, um, the trigger for the cold shock response. But I recently saw a research paper where they had people in 20 degree centigrade water, but they had them in for 20 minutes and they got some benefits. So there seems to be a trade-off between time and temperature, but it's really, it's at about that 15 degree centigrade that, that seems to be around that area. Yeah. So 15 uh, in Fahrenheit, that's 59, about 60 there you go. degrees Boom. Fahrenheit. And then 20, that's 68 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Yeah, and, and it's important for your listeners to understand, Brett, that there is a trade-off between temperature and time. So the colder you go, the less time you need to actually spend in it. So I know some, some people who get into ice baths and they're in there for eight, 10 minutes. There's really no benefit above being in an ice bath for around a minute. You know, the vast majority of the benefits are going to kick in there. There's not really a benefit to staying in as long as you possibly can, other than maybe a bit of psychological toughness. Is this something you can do every day or should you do it every other day? Um, we don't have any data on that. Uh, look, I think the best thing, um, Sonia Sonnenberg um, did a, a restart study and she found that the optimal dose was about 11 minutes of exposure over a week, right? So I think we need to see other research replicating or doing similar studies to her until we can say definitively, but let's take that as a guide for now. Gotcha. So yeah, I do my cold, sh- I do a cold shower before I work out. That's when I do it. That's what I like to do. Oh, it. interesting. And yeah, but it's hard to do cold showers or cold baths in Oklahoma during the summer because the water <laughs> is just lukewarm because it's like 115 <laughs> degrees outside. So now it's starting to cool off and now we're starting to enjoy it. Yeah, I, I can't, I don't want to spend like the $6,000 for one of those ice tubs, whatever. I'll give you a little hack, Brett. Okay, what's so that? So get, get, get an old fridge freezer, um, you know, one of those chest freezers. Yeah. And put silicone on the inside, so you silicone it up, and then you just plug it in on a timer and fill it up with water and run it three to four hours a day, and you you can get it to around the three to four degrees, and then you just need to jump in. There you go. Boom. Saved yourself $6,000. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? when I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, 
Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. What's another discomfort harvesting activity is exposure to heat. Now, this is something I do regularly. I've got a sauna. I did fork over the money for a sauna. I've really enjoyed it. So what happens to our bodies when we are in a sauna or even exercising out in the heat? Yeah, so that increase in core body temperature again, activates the heat shock proteins. And it's the heat shock proteins that seem to be the driver of these cellular changes and changes in gene expression. And the, and the other thing that a sauna does is it works as an exercise mimetic. So it seems to mimic the benefits of exercise. So you'll notice when you're in a sauna that your heartbeat goes up, your heart rate goes up, your stroke volume goes up. And that's some of the benefits that we get from low intensity aerobic exercise. And studies out of Finland have shown that people who have regular saunas four to seven times a week live seven years longer than people who don't. Now, one of the other benefits that you get is around this discomfort tolerance. So, so it, with the heat, and, and I have a son as well, I forked out on, on one, it's the best money I've ever spent. And with that heat, you know that discomfort that you feel when you get really, really hot? Yeah. That actually releases dynorphins in the brain. These are kind of like the cousins, the opposite cousins of endorphins. So endorphins are the feel-good chemical. Dynorphins, that thing that says, Brett, this is horribly hot. You need to get out of here. And it turns out when you activate the dynorphin system reasonably regularly, you actually make your endorphin system more sensitive 
So you actually get better feel-good chemicals from other exposures. So that would seem to be another independent effect. But there are there's just so many changes from your cardiovascular system and your hormonal system, heat shock proteins that happen when you expose yourself to that heat, that we get all of these net benefits. Uh, another benefit, we've had a guest on the podcast, Charles Rison. He's a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book called The New Mind-Body Science of Depression. And the argument he makes is that one potential cause of depression is inflammation. Mm. Not all people who are depressed, but some people who are depressed have increased markers for inflammation in the body. And so what he's found is if you put these people in a sauna, you have that acute increase in inflammation because you're sitting in the sauna. It's a, sauna, it's a stressor. And then in the long run, it reduces overall inflammation and it can help alleviate major depressive symptoms. Yeah, absolutely right. And and it's a little bit like exercise in, in that you get that transient increase of inflammation and then you get a net reduction afterwards. So yes, absolutely true. And we see that actually a sauna is, is pretty effective for depression, as is cold exposure. How hot does a sauna need to be to get the benefit? Like how long? What's going on there? Yeah. So look, again, we, we can't say absolutely definitively, but studies have shown that 80 degrees centigrade, again, Brett, you'll need to do the conversion to Fahrenheit, but at 20 minutes activates heat shock proteins. Now, possibly that could be less. This is really about increasing your core body temperature by one degree. And I actually did an N equals one study on my infrared sauna, which only goes up to 70. But infrared, as you may know, Brett, it penetrates deeper into the body. So potentially increases your core body temperature at lower temperatures. I did an, an N equals one using a rectal thermometer, which we won't go into, oh, but saw those benefits. Now that is N equals one, but we know that any exposure to significant heat where, where you're caused your body to sweat significantly is going to have those benefits. But if you want the heat shock proteins, it would appear it is around that 80 degrees centigrade, but maybe lower for an infrared sauna. And again, it's a trade-off against time. Okay, so 80 degrees centigrade, that's 176 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's pretty hot. That's that's hot. Now, yeah. now that doesn't mean, that, that's when they saw the, the increase, but they didn't in the study look at 70 degrees. So it may be that there could be less than that. And, and I think that there would be certainly be less than that when you look at an infrared sauna. And, and actually, we're going to do some research over here in Australia. I'm collaborating with people over in New Zealand to look into that. So maybe I'll, I'll let you know down the track once we work it out. Yeah, so when I do the sauna, I like to go really hot. So I get it to about 180 and then I just do it for 15 minutes, mm. 20 minutes. And then if it's cold outside, I like to get outside, kind of just be out there in the freezing cold and then get back in. Yeah, the nice benefit of winter. I live in Melbourne in the south of Australia and I have a swimming pool right beside my sauna and the swimming pool gets bloody cold in winter. So I'll get from the sauna into the pool, back into the sauna, back into the pool. The only thing I would say, Brett, on uh, for people around cold exposure is if you've just done resistance training, you don't want to get into the cold straight away because it dampens the inflammatory response. And we need that inflammatory response to drive muscle protein turnover. So I will generally do resistance training, get in the sauna. If you get in the sauna right after you've done strength training, you get a three to 500% increase in growth hormone. So that's the one time though, that I wouldn't do the hot, cold, hot, cold. I just want the heat right after the uh, strength training. 
Yeah, that's why I, I do my cold showers before my workouts rather than after. Let's talk about our diets. We kind of mentioned this earlier. How has our modern diet made us sick? Look, this is, I think, the biggest underappreciated impact on chronic disease is the massive change in our diet. For all of human history, apart from the blink of an eye, the last 30 to 50 years of, of, of human history, we have eaten natural foods that have been alive recently. Now, there is a massive global increase in ultra-processed food consumption. And there is a food classification system that came out of a university of Brazil called the NOVA classification that I think is the best ever invented. So it talks about the level of processing that we have unprocessed foods. I call these low HI foods, low human interference. And I always say to people, look at a piece of food, and if you can recognize that it's been alive recently, and minimally interfered with by humans, eat it. It's fine. Don't worry about the fat, the carbohydrate, the protein. But if you're looking at a piece of food and you're going, Mr. Krispy Kreme Donut, I don't remember seeing you running around on four legs, then it is in your treat food. So I'm not saying never eat it. I talk about the 80-20 rule. And the research that's come out of NOVA, there, there's literally around 100 research papers all showing the health risks when we increase ultra-processed foods in our diet above around a 20% mark. And you see that 20% mark in countries like France, Spain, and Italy. In America, it's about 60% of calories from ultra-processed foods, worse for kids. In, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada, all more than 50%, and Mexico as well. And it is this massive rise in ultra-processed foods. So let's define it. They are foods that go through industrial scale processing and have lots of additives in them, not just fat, salt, and sugar, but preservatives, artificial flavors, emulsifiers that make them feel great in the mouth. And we know that a lot of these chemicals disrupt our gut microbiome and that we also eat much more of those foods. A, a randomized control trial took a bunch of people, half went on an ultra-processed food diet, half were on a normal diet, matched for fat, carbohydrate, and protein. They did it for 14 days, and then they swapped over. And when people were eating ultra-processed food, they ate 500 calories a day more. So what we know about these ultra-processed foods, there are amazing scientists all around the world working out what's called the bliss point in the brain. These are certain combinations of fat, salt, and sugar, any two of those three that actually hijack our reward systems and give us a massive hit of dopamine and make these foods addictive or moorish. So we eat more of them and they're empty calories. So there's two mechanisms that happen here. One is you're eating a lot of crap and that is damaging our cells and damaging our whole processes. But we are also crowding out good foods things like fruits, vegetables, fresh meats, fish, all of those things that are really beneficial for us. So we get more rubbish in and less good stuff in. So it's a bit of a double whammy. Okay, so your guidelines for countering this food ecosystem we find ourselves in. First one is eat a low HI diet, so low human interference diet. And it doesn't mean to eliminate all those foods, but 80% should come from low HI diet. So whole foods, oatmeal, yogurts, meats, vegetables, if you eat 80% of your diet coming from that, you're probably going to be okay. Correct. 
Correct. And, and don't worry so much about the fat, the carbohydrate, the protein. Just eat real foods. And you know the clue? Real food does not have ingredients. Real food is ingredients. You also talk about another rule is feed both of your brains. What do you mean by that? So yes, the second brain, the enteric nervous system. So this is basically your gut microbiome. And we know that a lot of neurons reside in the gut microbiome. And there's a two-way connection between the brain and the gut. And we know that basically, if you look at most chronic diseases, lots of neurodegenerative diseases, obesity, diabetes, there are disruptions in the gut microbiome. And, and we get really good evidence that this is causative. When you look at fecal transplants on either animals or humans, where you can take the gut microbiome of an unhealthy mouse or human and, and transplant it into a healthy one, and they actually develop diseases. Or vice versa, you can take an unhealthy mouse, generally we do these on animals, and transplant the gut microbiome of a healthy mouse and the disease disappears. So we know we, there's pretty good evidence that it's causative. And we know that there are certain things that are very beneficial for our gut microbiome. We've known for decades that fiber is good because there are a certain class of bugs in your microbiome that munch fiber and they give off these beneficial short chain fatty acids that are really good for our heart and our brain and the rest of our body. And what we also know is that fermented foods, so there's a great study came out of Stanford University a couple of years ago where they took a bunch of people on the SAD diet, as it's called the standard American diet, and half of them, they put on a high fiber diet, half of them high fermented foods, and they measured markers of inflammation. And they actually thought that everybody was going to do better. But what they saw is that some people on the high fiber diet did better, some did much worse. They didn't tolerate the fiber well. Everybody on the fermented foods diet did better. And what it seems to be is that when we eat fermented foods, they send signals to our gut microbiome to actually be healthier and they proliferate the ones that digest the fiber. So my takeout from that study is if your diet's not so great, start to add in some fermented foods like sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, Greek yogurts, these sorts of things, some, some, some cheeses, miso soup, anything that's got pickles or vinegar, add that into your diet first bit by bit and then start to add in fiber and particularly what we call resistant starch. And then you'll create a much healthier microbiome. And at the same time, reduce your amount of sugar and processed foods because they're the ones that really drive an unhealthy microbiome. Yeah, I love kimchi. My mouth's watering just thinking about it. <laughs> there you go. It's so good on your eggs. And then resistant starch, that, that's found in things like uh, peas, beans, lentils, whole grains. There's there's supplements for resistant starch. I know raw potato starch and yes, high maize is another and, starch that you can supplement with. And banana, banana flour and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, they're supplements. But yeah, you get them in peas, beans, lentils, these sorts of things. Um, the skin of apples and, and stuff like that. So it's just eating lots of fruit, vegetables, peas, beans, pulses, those sorts of things. And the other rule is embrace nutritional hormesis. What does nutritional hormesis look like? Yeah, so there's two aspects to this. One is these hermetic polyphenols. And so things like a lot of people talk about broccoli being superfood and sulfurophane that's in it. 
And, and people talk about it being an antioxidant. It's actually not. It's a small dose of poison that creates an antioxidant effect. And, and we know that lots of fruits and vegetables have these hormetic polyphenols, little small doses of poison that the plants use as protective mechanisms against insects. But because we are much bigger, they just create a very mild metabolic stress and that upregulates protective genes, things like superoxamide dismatuse catalase, glutathione perioxidase. These are, are things that drive your antioxidant defense system. So by eating small doses of toxins that we find in plants, we get a net beneficial effect. And then the other hormetic stressor is intermittent fasting. And, and humans have done intermittent fasting unintentionally since the start of time or since we've been around anyway. And, and it turns out that there are lots of beneficial biological processes that happen when we go without food for a little bit of time. We get a cleaning up of our cells, that's called autophagy, and we can then switch over. We develop metabolic flexibility. We switch over from running off glucose to running off ketone bodies that can actually be very, very healthy for us. So there's a whole heap of different fasting strategies, which we can go through some of them, if you like, just at a top level. Yeah, like what are ones that you like, fasting protocols that you like for a beginner? Yeah, look, for a beginner, I, th I, I think to dip your toe in the water, Brett, there's really good benefits, anti-cancer benefits from doing a 13-hour night fast. So nil by mouth other than water. And I used to be a late night snacker. And I saw this research that showed that it reduced the incidence of breast cancer and breast cancer recurrence in females when they did a 13-hour night fast. But they also understood the mechanism from animal studies that basically at night when you're asleep, your DNA repair enzymes are switched on. And these are little enzymes that run all the way through your body, checking your cells, looking for cancerous and precancerous cells. And when they find them, they execute them, right? Which is pretty cool stuff, right? But when we eat late at night, we have these peripheral clocks in our liver and our pancreas that sense the nutrients and switch off the master clock and these DNA repair enzymes don't happen. So their research said that basically people who eat late at night significantly increase their cancer risk. So I think starting off with a 13-hour night fast. And, and when I first did this, I'm thinking, God, how am I going to get through the night? So I ran an experiment. I didn't eat and I woke up in the morning and I wasn't dead. I'm like, who knew? So you just repeat the experiment, right? And you find that it, it's just, it's habit really and, and appetites, not really hunger. Um, and then you can extend that, if you like, to a 16-8 protocol. I'm sure you've had people talk about this. This is where you compress your eating window into an eight-hour window and you fast for 16. But it doesn't have to be 16. It can be those 12, 13 hours and anything above that is useful. And then, and, and I, I, I only suggest this for people who are over 40, is doing an extended fast, like a four or five day water fast. Because what seems to happen then is when we do that, we get system-wide autophagy. So, so what happens basically is that when there's nothing coming in, the body uses this as a cellular spring clean. And it just goes around in it and it recycles cancerous cells, precancerous cells, and these senescent cells. These are cells that are supposed to have died, but they haven't really done it properly and they kind of hang around in a zombie state and, and they release inflammation. So you get that whole cleanup metabolically and cellularly 
when you do those extended fasts and maybe do that once or twice a year, particularly if you've got poor health, that can be really good. And what it also does is it kills off our autoimmune cells first. So there can be a real cleanse cellular from doing that. But I also want to caution people around this. I mean, I did intermittent fasting for quite a while and I lost a bit of weight and I was getting DEXA scans, but I noticed that I was losing a lot of muscle. And so for me, this is a trade-off. And because I'm now in my 50s, I do not want to lose muscle. I'm metabolically healthy. So I'm looking at, okay, so what are my goals here? Well, I know I'm metabolically healthy and I want to be maintaining at least and probably building muscle before I go into my 60s. So I've taken a break for a while from intermittent fasting. So I always say to people, what are your goals? If it is about improving your metabolic health, then fasting, go and knock yourself out. But as you get into your 40s, 50s, and certainly into your 60s, you need to be aware that you're not eating into your muscle mass. So it becomes a bit of a trade-off then. Okay, so we've talked about some different ways we can incorporate more good stress in our life. Exercise, move more, cold showers, heat exposure, eating better foods. And some of these foods have hormetic properties, doing some intermittent fasting maybe. Let's talk about rest and recovery. What role does rest and recovery play in adding good stress to your life? So the way I would start to answer that question is by telling people that most of the gains in athletic performance in the last 10 years and certainly the last five years haven't been through training methods. It's been through recovery. So recovery is really, really important to have an athlete being a sustainable peak performer and not dipping into overtraining syndrome. And we know that the links between overtraining syndrome and corporate burnout are just so deep. The etiology of those conditions is pretty much identical. So recovery is the one variable that we can all use in order to make sure that we stay in optimal health, particularly if we have stressful lives. And a little tip here, a little kind of a preview is that Recovery is not sitting with your feet up, watching Netflix, drinking a bottle of wine or half a dozen beers. That is relaxation. So they're very, very different. So I think recovery here is absolutely fundamental. And with recovery, I'm talking about things like exercise, like the cold and heat that we talked about, but also breath work and sleep hygiene and, and taking regular, I call them brain booster breaks throughout the day, do a little burst of exercise and then to do one to two minutes of breath work, drink a bit of water. That is like taking your brain out and then plugging it into the wall to get a recharge. And then when we talk about macro recovery, that's about sleep and having good sleep hygiene practices are critical because when you're asleep, that is when your brain cleans out the toxins. The brain actually doesn't have a lymphatic system. It's got a glymphatic system that starts with G and that happens at night. That's when we clean our brain out of toxins. And, and we know that sleep is so important for biological repair. I don't know uh, if you know anything about this, but something I've been thinking about when it comes to sleep is, you know, I wonder if there's like any hormetic benefit for occasionally having a crappy night's sleep or even like pulling an occasional all-nighter. Because like when I, when I think back to, you know, caveman days, I don't think people really slept very well, right? They didn't, I mean, they didn't have good sleep hygiene, right? I mean, you're sleeping outside around a lot of people, there's crying babies. I don't imagine them having the best sleep compared to where, you know, us, we have, you know, we're in a dark 60 degree room with, you know, the eight mattress and all this stuff. <laughs> 
Um, so I wondered if there is like a, a benefit of sometimes having a crappy night's sleep. Like maybe maybe we're made to handle the stress and little doses can be good, maybe. Yeah, and look, we don't know. Um, so these are the things that there are, there are hermesis works in mysterious ways. But what I would say is there may be a small benefit, a small hermetic benefit to a little bit of a of lack of sleep because we know that there are some physiological changes that potentially could be beneficial. But again, it would be very intermittent if right. there was. And, and having consistently good sleep just because there are so many fundamental biological processes that depend on having good sleep. So yes, having a bad night's sleep every now and then, certainly not as bad as some people might think. And, and I would caution people again, you know, we talked about Apple Watches earlier on, that research shows that, say Brett, they have me and you in the study, and it was engineered that we both have five hours of sleep a night. If they tell you that you had good sleep and they tell me that I had bad sleep, right? But we both had the same. And then we do test of cognition. You will do much better than I would. So a lot of this can be the placebo effect that when you look at your watch and you go, oh, I had bad sleep, you automatically then your mood decreases, your cognitive performance decreases. So so just be overly wary about looking at watches because they are guessing. Basically, they're using heart rate and movement to try and guess when you're asleep and, and what stage of sleep that you're actually in. The best indicator is whether or not you wake up feeling refreshed. Right. Or even if you don't wake up feeling refreshed, you could have had like enough sleep for your what your body and mind needed. I've had those moments where I, I, yeah. I slept you know, solid seven hours, but I'm just like feeling groggy and not great. And I think, oh my gosh, my workout's going to suck today. I'm going to have a bad, but I ended up like crushing it in the gym. Work yep. was great. I just, yeah, never, I like that, that word, the opposite of placebo is nocebo. Yes, so, correct. Yeah. Never nocebo yourself. So if you had a bad night's sleep, just don't worry about it. That's right. Just kidding. And, and you know, a brilliant little hack, right? If you have a bad light sleep, take some creatine. Um, because creatine monohydrate. So, so think of our energy systems. We got ATP, PC. We got the lactic acid and the aerobic energy system. And creatine plays directly into ATP, PC. It's phosphocreatine. And it, the research now shows that creatine is really good for the brain. I mean, all of your cells use creatine. But I've got research papers which I can flick you and you can put them in the show notes that shows that if you take creatine after a bad night's sleep, that minimizes the negative effect on brain function. That's cool. I didn't know that. So you offer some concrete advice on how to put these practices we've talked about today into routine action. Like we were talking about earlier, a lot of uh, the work of a a trainer or a coach, it's behavior modification. Mm. So you have to think a lot about this. And one idea that stuck out to me was this idea of the ritual board. What is a ritual board and how can it help someone create healthy habits? Yeah, so a ritual board, I kind of stumbled across this thing. I created it when at the age of 41, I decided to become a professional boxer, which to my wife's disgust. But I put my goal on the ritual board to be a professional boxer and I put my why. So for me, always connecting a goal to a deeply held value is really important. And my why was authenticity. But then I'm saying, okay, what's the process that I need to do? And so I I put down a whole heap of things that I needed to do, you know, going to a boxing trainer, starting three times a week, going up to six, right? Doing my runs, doing my visualization. And then I had a whole heap of little movement snacks on there. And so all this is all about the process, right? So we have goals. 
But then we have a process. What are the habits that we need to do to get it? And you write these all down on a board. I just use an A4 one now. I've got one right beside my desk. And you have a weekly target for each of those things. Now, the key thing is have some hard ones on there, like go and do a workout, you know, go and do some healthy shopping. And then when you're highly motivated, do the hard stuff. But you've got to have lots of easy ones there, right? So put on, I might do 100 kettlebell swings a week, but you can do them in blocks of 10. So then when you look at your ritual board, you just go, hey, I'm just going to go do 10 kettlebell swings. And then you tick it off. You write down, I've done 10. And that creates a feedback. So what, this is all based on the work of BJ Fogg, Professor BJ Fogg, brilliant guy in terms of behavior change. And you need a trigger to do the behavior and you need a feedback mechanism. And this ritual board acts as both. Because when I see it sitting beside my desk, it becomes a trigger to do something. And then when you tick it off, that is giving you feedback that actually you are making forwards motion towards your goal. And the big thing I, I had my epiphany on that was I realized the more I was interacting with it, the more motivated I was getting and then I'm like, oh, you muppet. The natural rewards for the brain, food, water, sex, nurturing, and achievement. And so when you achieve something, and, and especially when you tick it off, that releases a bit of dopamine. And dopamine is the chemical of motivation. So what we now know is that motivation follows action, not the other way around. And lots of people are waiting for the motivation fairy to come along and give them a big dollop of motivation before they get started. The motivation fairy is the ritual board. That's what I find. Yeah, you have a, a picture of your ritual board in the book, right? So at, at the top, you've got your goal and then the why of that goal. And then you have these rows of these different exercises that you want to do throughout the week. And then each, each exercise has a numeric goal for the number of times uh, you want to do that exercise during the week. So you know, on yours, you have you got bag work 12 times a week, chin-ups, you're going to do 50 reps during the week, sumo squats, 200. And then you have columns for each day of the week where you can write down how many times you did the exercise that day. And the goal is you want to do enough each day so you hit your weekly goal. So you know, basically with this ritual board, you're, you're gamifying your goal. Absolutely. And the key thing, Brett, is you got to have lots of easy ones on there so you interact with it and have it somewhere where you will see it regularly. So my original one was on my bathroom mirror. I've also had times in the kitchen. Now I have it right beside my desk because I spent a fair bit of time at my desk. Uh, did you become a professional boxer? I did. And I've now retired undefeated 1-0. Okay. and <laughs> <laughs> Do you box at all? Like just, you know, sparring I, 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 I do do a bit of it, but but I'm I'm kind of I was tempted to get back into it but but just there's so much research about the negative effects of repetitive trauma to the brain and it doesn't have to be massive so it's something that I love but I do very very intermittently like I'll do plenty of boxing training but the sparring I've kind of backed right off from because I, I want to have a healthy brain when I'm in my 80s and 90s. Well, that's cool. I mean, you did that when you were 41. That's really inspiring that even if you're in midlife, you can still do something big like that. And, and I think, uh, the, you know, the part of this, Red, is that we, we do need to do hard stuff. And so I generally, every decade, will go out of my way and do something that is really, really challenging. You know, I've also gone to the Amazon and had a three-week trek deep into the Amazon to visit Matzes Indians and went through a rite of passage there. So, you know, every 10 years or so, 
I do a really hard challenge just to make, just to really to counter that development of the soft underbelly that we get with modern life. What do you got scheduled for your 50s? So my wife has actually thrown one to me and it's made me really uncomfortable. And, and I know, she said to me, why does it always have to be physical? She said, why don't you go and do a five-day or a 10-day silent retreat? Mm. And for an Irishman, we're talkers. That, that makes me very uncomfortable. So I think that's going to be my next one. I love that. Well, Paul, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So, so probably my, my website, paultaylor.biz. I also have a podcast, the Paul Taylor podcast and Instagram. I'm at paultaylor.biz on Instagram. And then you can find my book. Most of your listeners, I think will be in the States and um, just on Amazon, Death by Comfort. Fantastic. Well, Paul Taylor, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And, and I would like to say just, I, I, I have to say this, Brett, I have to give you a thank you from my wife because I listened a few years ago to you interviewing Greg Creech from the uh, Togo Institute, right? And I sent it to her and said, you need to listen to this guy because my wife's a coach. And she listened to it. She loved it. And she went and studied with Greg for a year on Japanese psychology. And she's been doing that for a couple of years and practicing with her clients and getting brilliant results. So, so thank you for that. You've had a big impact in our household. Well, thanks so much for letting me know. That's great to hear. Greg, that's one of my, my favorite interviews that we've done. Oh, he's awesome. I've had him on my podcast twice. I had him on just uh, two weeks ago. He's, he's just, he's brilliant. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Paul Taylor. He's the author of the book, Death by Comfort. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, paultaylor.biz. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash stronger. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com/offer/seriousxm. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.